Amen. Our passage today is from Acts chapter 9. It's probably familiar. Acts chapter 9, verses, uh, this is 1 through 19. You can follow along on the screen or in your Bibles. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found anyone who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. And as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus, and for three days he was blind, did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias, and the Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias! Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he's seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he's come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. The word of the Lord. Amen. You know, normally when we, uh, we think about the perpetrators of religious or political or like ideological violence of some form, we tend to think, you know, like or lump them into this group of, you know, crazies, Right? They sit kind of at the edges of our society, and we don't really have to to confront them very often. They're just, they're crazy. We imagine that most of these people have some sort of mental health issue that's gone unaddressed for a long time. Maybe they were abused in some sort of way. Maybe they've dealt with something that's never been addressed. They aren't particularly well-educated people, and in this sort of vulnerable and ignorant state of mind, They came under the influence of some radical group of people. And when that happened, 
As they joined this particular group of people, they became further isolated and further rejected by society, right? This only makes the problem worse, right? That's the way it normally goes. Saul of Tarsus is a rabbi and a member of a particularly radical group of people, the Pharisees. He's been a part of this group of people for a long time. And you could say that, that, that Saul, from everything we know about him, is incredibly zealous for the Jewish faith, right? He kind of fits the picture of a kind of like conservative, radical fundamentalism. That's how Saul seems, right? But here's the thing. Other than that, there, there's not a lot of similarity. Saul is incredibly well-educated. He's been educated in the most expensive and exclusive kind of schools anyone has access to where he's from. He comes from that sort of lifestyle. He sat under the, the most influential rabbis of his day, right? This is a man who was not socially rejected or ostracized for his beliefs. He's a man who was celebrated and respected for the work he was doing, including what he was about to do in Damascus, what he'd already overseen when Stephen was stoned to death. Like, if you can imagine it, right? Meeting Saul of Tarsus would be like us meeting the, the pastor of Westboro Baptist Church, famous for all of his hate, and finding out, actually, he's got a PhD from Oxford. He played lacrosse there. He enjoys wine tasting on the weekend. You're just like, what? That guy is re refined? He, he comes from... From that sort of background, right? That's, that's Saul, right? He's this incredibly well-connected elite member of his society. He shows up in Damascus, not just on a whim. He comes with the authority of the high priest to do the work he's about to do. That's not how we, we normally see something like this, an act of violence that's about to be done. He is all of those things, and yet he just also happens to be willing to murder, to imprison people, knowing that that might lead to their death. He, he's, he's okay with that for the sake of his cause, for anyone who might choose to follow the crucified man, Jesus of Nazareth. He has in mind that they also might need to be crucified. Like, how does that happen? How does this incredibly powerful and influential man who's willing to murder for his cause, how does he become the man we later know, who, you know, like he writes in 1 Corinthians 12, I boast in my weaknesses. He doesn't strike you in Acts 9 as the kind of guy who would write something like that. Or in Romans 12, don't repay anyone evil for evil. But if at all possible, live at peace with everyone. I mean, he doesn't strike you as the most peaceful kind of person, right? How does this happen, right? Saul's influence in the church it's hard to overestimate after this. I mean, here's the thing we don't always take seriously. Saul's influence on the modern Western world, on our minds, is hard to, to overestimate. We don't always think about that. But if you never open a Bible, if you, you never choose to follow Jesus, your mind has been shaped by this man who's on the road to Damascus, ready to kill someone. How does it happen, right? Like we tend to think of ourselves as like, 
we're taught in history the importance of, of Roman and, and Greek culture before it and the influence that it's had on the Western world and the way we, we see things, right? What we need to understand is that we've been influenced as much, if not more, by the things that one particular Roman, Saul of Tarsus, was writing at the time. Like, think about this. The Romans teach us the value of law. So much of the way we think about law and society and, and order within a society, it's all thanks to the Romans, right? That's, that's what we're taught. But here's the thing. Saul comes along and he says, listen, all of those laws, they're not meant to protect just certain classes of people. They're meant to, to protect all people, right? He says that it's not just certain classes of people who have rights, all people have rights. It's not just the rich individuals who have rights or the rich classes who have rights. It's the poor as well. It's not just free individuals who have rights. It's those that are enslaved as well, right? They have this human dignity and value. That's Saul writing that in a, a society who has very little interest in it. Saul goes around the Roman world planting these churches, these communities where he can say, there is neither male nor female, slave nor free, Jew nor Gentile, right? He's crossing all kinds of lines that nobody else was interested in crossing. Nobody had done that before. He says all of these rights, all of these protections belong to more people than just Roman citizens, more than just people with the right color skin, from the right place, with the right religious affiliation. He teaches that to us, right? This becomes one of our, our greatest ideals, something we value deeply. And nobody else was talking about it as much at the time. How does this man manage to create that kind of unity among such radically diverse people? How does he manage to do such a thing when he, as far as we can tell here, is a violent, bigoted man, right? How does he become the apostle to the Gentiles, to his enemies effectively, when he seems to be such a broken and violent man? And the answer is what happens in Acts 9. Something takes place. Believer or not, something happens in the life of this man, Saul of Tarsus. And you, you kind of have to forgive me. I get a little overexcited about this stuff because I like to think about these things a little bit more than I should. I spend way too much time thinking about this stuff, but this is better than you realize. Like what we're talking about, what's happening here, right? If you consider this, the best that human history has ever offered, right? The best thing that we as a society ever have, have offered the world. The thing that we're still striving for, the thing we stand on still, it all can be traced back to a moment like this, to what Jesus does to Saul on the road to Damascus. And if this moment doesn't happen, our world as we know it may not even be the same. Saul does something so important, right? And it can all be traced back to this moment, right? And we've been doing this series on, on epiphany, all these different epiphanies in Moses' life, in Jacob's life, in Samuel's life, and here we are in Saul's life. 
These encounters with the, the risen Jesus that, that we have experienced as his people, right? These epiphanies, these, these moments in our lives and the lives of God's people when God disrupts our lives. In this case, when Christ himself disrupts a life. It's not just something that's important for those who happen to be believers. It's not just a believer's only hope of salvation, having this sort of encounter with the living God. This is society's only hope for something better, Because humanity, as we know it, we just cannot conjure the kinds of things that he's leading us toward, that the Spirit has led him toward. This epiphany thing, it's important. This thing that's happening is important. But there's there's more to it than I think we remember. When we think of Acts 9, we, we forget a lot. We think only of the blinding light. We think of the thundering voice of God. And we imagine that Saul was converted on the spot, that everything changed in an instant for Saul, right? But it plays out differently than that. There are these, these three dark days that we just forget about, where he's struck blind. We think about the scales falling from his eyes, and we forget that for three days he couldn't see anything. It takes someone coming alongside him, praying with him, for all of that to take place. There's this this act of faith from a relatively unknown man, a member of the early church, who stumbles into this whole situation. And it, it forces us to see that epiphany, as we often think about it, is it's not what we always make it out to be. We romanticize this notion of God speaking to us, of encountering God. We romanticize it, and we make it warm and fuzzy, and we make it deeply profound and powerful and impactful in all these sorts of ways, and we forget sometimes there's this subtle quality about it. There are these things that we miss very often because we, we're looking for something else. And so I think this story helps us to look at Epiphany from a different angle. It's helpful. So as we begin, okay, don't get too distracted by what are effectively the special effects in the chapter, right? Don't get distracted by by this, this huge thing that's going on. Pay attention, and you see that this Epiphany is not like a lot of the others we've seen. This epiphany is not the sort of thing that you would, you know, you would want to bring on yourself, right? What Paul walks through is painful, and it's slow, and it's humbling. It's painful, and it's, it's, it's slow, and it's humbling. So think first about the pain of what Saul is experiencing in this moment. Think about hearing these words from Jesus. And the words of Jesus to Saul are not, comfort, comfort my people, from Isaiah 40, right? He he doesn't get anything quite that nice. He gets this probing question, and you imagine Jesus has raised his voice. Why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me? Saul's thinking, as far as I I knew, I was just persecuting. You're dead. I'm just persecuting them. I'm just persecuting a group of lunatics who've chosen to follow a crucified man. That's who I'm persecuting. And Saul, when he hears this, he's got to be thinking, this could go bad, right? This could go sideways quickly. When Saul realizes that he hasn't just been persecuting these lunatics, he's been persecuting Jesus, the risen Messiah who he had rejected. 
He's standing toe-to-toe with the man who apparently has overcome death and hell, right? Like he's, he's looking into the face of Jesus, and he's surely got to be terrified when he hears the words, why are you persecuting me? But then imagine how painful it must be beyond that to realize how his misunderstanding of Scripture has led him to sign off on some pretty terrible things. It led to one man's death, we know for sure. And he knows now that his religious violence is not justified. He knows that he stands guilty and hopeless in the face of the one he knows must be now his judge. Like, imagine the pain of that, realizing the cost of your misunderstanding, of everything you've gotten wrong. That's like a heavy burden that's sitting on him in this moment to realize all of that. And then there's that background thing that we know that Saul doesn't know, what he said to Ananias. Saul doesn't know yet all that he must suffer for my name. There's all this pain woven into the story, all this difficulty that we don't always see, right? And here's the thing. Here's why that's important. We spend so much of our lives, I think every one of us at some point, either you have have done this or you've known somebody who did this, you've thought Life would be much simpler if it played out here like it does in these stories. If God would just speak to me with the same kind of clarity that he speaks to Saul on the road to Damascus, my life would be much simpler. If God would just tell me what I'm supposed to be doing, if God would just leave me in that kind of way. A lot of us wish that's the way it could play out, that that God might have have intervened in my life earlier when I was younger and and stupider, more rebellious and stubborn, right? He could probably have saved me from a whole lot of heartache, from ruining a whole lot of really good things. Wouldn't that have been better? And I'm not sure when we ask for something like this, when we ask for God to speak to us, to make himself known to us, to make his will known to us. I'm not sure that we're prepared for all of the pain that might be involved because that's what Saul is running up against. This is a deeply painful thing for him. The other misconception when we remember Acts chapter 9, the conversion of of Saul on the road, we imagine that it happened suddenly. Right? That's what we imagine. We think of these things as happening like this. Right? Just one moment in the presence of Jesus can change everything. Right? When he's confronted by Jesus, everything changes. But this isn't sudden. That's not what we're told. It's not like Saul gets up, realizes he's blind, and says, Man, my life just changed. Like He's got some questions right? as he's walking toward Damascus, as people are guiding him there. The opening of his eyes takes time, right? The epiphany is slow. It's not sudden. And we always imagine it's like this one moment with Jesus is going to change everything, but epiphany, you you look here, it's slow. There's three days that he sits in, in blindness. He's probably wondering if he'll ever see again. He's wondering maybe if this is his punishment for all the things that he's guilty of, right? Maybe this is like the thorn that God's giving him. Things get worse before they get better. Imagine Saul sitting there for like three days. This is a man who's so deeply familiar with the scriptures, 
so bathed in Scripture that as he's sitting there in his blindness, I'm sure he's recounting all of these Scriptures and rethinking them, beginning to realize, like, if Jesus is the Messiah, all of this starts to make sense just in a way I didn't recognize it, right? He's realizing that Jesus has completely dismantled everything that he once stood on. And he's probably sitting there wondering, like, is God going to speak again? What's going to happen next? Will things get worse? How much worse? When will God tell me exactly what I'm supposed to do with all of this? I think part of the reason that we long for this kind of experience, for this encounter with with God, for some clarity, for the voice of God, we assume most of the time when we ask for such a thing that that one moment will make everything better. Like with one moment with Jesus, I'll have my answer. One moment in worship and, I, and I'll have my answer and everything can get better. And let's, let's be real, sometimes that happens. But I think far more often, you need to expect that the notion of epiphany, this idea of epiphany, it's a process. It's not sudden. Far more often, it's a process. And the question we're forced to ask ourselves as we look at the story is, You're okay with this one moment with Jesus. It can be painful and slow. That's fine as long as it's this one moment and then everything gets better. But are you willing to enter into the painful, slow process with Jesus? Like that's a different thing altogether. And that's what Saul is realizing in this moment. And then there's this whole other aspect, right? We always forget that these sorts of experiences to encounter God, to hear his voice, it's a deeply humbling thing, right? And there's kind of a thin line, you know, between being humbled by something and being humiliated by something. Like, being humbled means, like, there's something to be learned from it, right? There's value. There's a a positive kind of connotation to being humbled by something. Then there's being humiliated. We don't feel so great about that. And I think Saul is probably trying to figure out the line's kind of been blurred. He's feeling humbled and maybe a little humiliated. Like Saul's feeling all of it. He had to have felt just absolutely helpless. Because like his entire life, he's been in control. He's a dignified and influential man. And when it comes to these sorts of things, spiritual matters, like he's seen it. He knows what's going on. He's far better educated and and equipped to address such spiritual matters than some seemingly random guy who's following Jesus who lives in Damascus. But that's who God sends to him, some seemingly random guy. He sends Ananias, who we know nothing about, to pray for him, to teach him, to baptize him, And that's incredibly humbling for Saul. But it's this reminder. Epiphany is not always just this moment with Jesus. It's painful and it's slow and it's humbling, right? And now, having sat here while I've labored this point, you're thinking, so I don't want it. That's what you're telling me. I don't want this. What's happening in the Bible, really, I didn't realize it. I don't want it. That's what Kyle is telling me. No! It's exactly what you want, but you just need to know what comes with it. 
You need to stop fantasizing and romanticizing about it, and you need to understand the reality of it, and you need to seek it in the same sort of way, right? Because if this story is true, it, it takes all of this pain and all of this patience and all of this humility for Saul of Tarsus to become the man we know he eventually became. It is worth it. Whatever risk might be involved, the reward is far better. We know it. This is what you want. You just need to understand there's more to it than we often think about. There's more happening here. Saul is, is entering into the painful, slow, humbling or humiliating process of epiphany. That's what's happening to Saul on the road to Damascus. But here's what I love about Acts 9. Meanwhile, back in town... There's something else happening to Ananias. We hear Acts 9 and we think about the conversion of Saul. We think about this incredible vision that Saul has, this experience, this encounter he has with God, and we forget. This is what's lost in the story. There's more than one epiphany in Acts chapter 9. There's more than one vision happening here. There are two visions Ananias is just the guy that we've never heard of, and he's kind of easy to forget. But while Saul is having an epiphany about Christ, realizing something about Christ that he, he did not see, that he did not understand, while he's having this epiphany about Christ, Ananias is having an epiphany about Saul. Ananias is having an epiphany about his enemies, about those he might not be so willing to go to. Saul's epiphany, you could say, is vertical. Ananias' epiphany is horizontal. He's learning something about those he might easily hate and reject and avoid. So think about it this way. Jesus speaks to Ananias, and we think, oh, well, that, that's great. I'm sure it was nice because Ananias has done nothing wrong, right? He doesn't have to feel the same burden and weight that Saul does, because he hasn't done anything wrong. He's not guilty of the same sorts of things. So this experience is probably different for Ananias. And it's like, no, man, every time, every time, the way we see it in Scripture, it always seems to be terrifying. Can you imagine how terrifying it is? Not because he's done something terribly wrong and he has this burden that he has to bear in that sense, that he's guilty before God in this way, but because what he's being asked to do is unconscionable. He's being asked to put his life at risk. He's being asked to go to a man that he's fully aware has come there to hurt people like him. Imagine how terrifying it is to hear Jesus say, I want you to go to the house of Judas on Straight Street, and I want you to seek out this man from Tarsus. And Ananias is thinking, don't say it. There's only one guy from Tarsus who came to town this week. Don't you say his name. I want you to go and seek out this guy, Saul. Two warning signs, right? For Ananias, number one, Saul. We only know him by his reputation. We've never met the guy, never seen the guy. We're frankly happy we haven't at this point. He's terrifying. Nothing but trouble comes with Saul. He's a fundamentalist zealot. Second, it could not have been lost on Ananias that the house he's being asked to go to is Judas's house. 
Man, it couldn't be like Rabbi Eleazar's house. It couldn't be Isaiah's house or David's house or Samuel's house. It's got to be Judas's house. So when I go to be betrayed, it's got to be at Judas's house. When I go to my death and demise, it's got to be at Judas's house. There's something about that that just kind of like hangs over it. Ananias, if we take this seriously, probably knew or was connected to people who had been dragged off simply because they professed faith in Jesus. They chose to follow him, right? And he says as much to Jesus, like, Jesus, this Saul, is a problematic figure. He's a man capable of all kinds of, of terrible things. And you're at, I, I just want to make sure you're talking about the same guy. And Jesus says, still, go. He's my chosen instrument. Tell me that's not terrifying. Tell me that's not difficult for him. Epiphany is not easy. Ananias is feeling it, right? He goes. When Ananias arrives, despite all of his initial fears, there's this amazing thing that happens. The first words we read that he speaks to Saul as he places his hands on him. The first words are, brother. Brother Saul. Not Saul of Tarsus. Brother Saul. Can you imagine how hard it is knowing the kind of things that this man has perpetrated to put your hands on him and call him brother, knowing that he came to arrest people just like you, to welcome him as family, to put your hands on him, right? Epiphany is not easy. But imagine this. As much as that would have been difficult for Ananias, imagine how much it affected Saul to hear it all. This is something that, that I love about this passage. Think about it. We imagine that Saul was transformed on the road to Damascus, right? That one moment with Jesus changed everything. Saul was forever changed. But that's not what we're seeing here. Epiphany is a process. And you have to imagine how transformative, how healing must it have been for Saul, knowing all that he's done, all that he's guilty of. And this man, who sees him as an enemy, has chosen to receive him in love. He's only receiving forgiveness and love and kindness from this man, right? Imagine what that does to you. Saul's realizing that, that Jesus can transform not just him and all of his guilt and brokenness, He's realizing he can change even his enemies. Saul's realizing that, that Jesus can make your enemy your brother. If you're willing to enter into the, the painful process, right? Even as Ananias is learning firsthand what exactly Jesus meant when he says, love your enemies and bless those who persecute you, right? Ananias is having his whole other epiphany experience, right? And Saul is beginning to realize how real all of this is, how powerful all of this is. Enemy love. And I think Saul is just as affected by the voice of Ananias as he is by the voice of Jesus. As powerful as the experience is on the road to Damascus when Jesus says, why do you persecute me? 
As undone as he is by that voice, I have to imagine that when he hears Ananias say, brother, he's undone. Because he hears the voice of Jesus in the voice of this man, Ananias. He hears it. He knows it to be true. And here's the thing we're left to consider. Maybe, maybe Ananias was, was like us. That's what I love about this story. Maybe Ananias is just like you and I. He's been in this place in his life where he, he needs clarity. He needs God's peace. He needs God to, to speak in such a way that he can hear and respond. He needs direction. And maybe when he prayed for that, maybe when he asked for it, he was expecting some ecstatic moment with Jesus, right? And instead, he got something terrifying, something painful, something overwhelming, right? That is the reality of epiphany. Maybe he was expecting a moment like Saul's, right? This one instant that would change everything, and it would change him, and he would go on to change the world like Saul did. His work and his teaching would leave a mark for thousands of years, right? Maybe that's what he was imagining. Something incredible could happen if I encountered Jesus this way, if God spoke in this way. And instead, what Ananias gets is never really another mention in Scripture. His name is only really ever brought up in connection to this story. It comes up when they retell the story of Saul's conversion. It's not the story of, of Ananias' great act of forgiveness and love. It's the story of Saul's conversion. As far as we know it, this man lives out the rest of his life in relative obscurity. Despite being a man who knows the voice of God and responds to it faithfully, probably again and again in obedience, he's never celebrated for it in the same way that others are. And that's why I think he's so important. Because we know, unless he chooses to, obe to be obedient, maybe Saul never becomes Paul the Apostle, right? Yes, sure, Jesus can do it through anybody. But Ananias is the one who chose to respond faithfully. That's why he's so important, because I think you can relate a whole lot easier to Ananias' experience. His experience is so much more like ours than that of, say, Moses, or even Samuel, or Jacob. His experience is so much more like ours. Ananias makes sense to us. He teaches us the power of quiet, simple obedience. He teaches us the value of embracing the painful, slow humbling process of epiphany. Ananias has so much to offer, right? And this thought crosses my mind. I was thinking about this this week. Maybe for those of us who find ourselves in this place where we're longing to hear from God, maybe some of us who like, who hear, yes, sure, Kyle and Jonathan stand up here and we talk about the voice of God all the time and you go, I'm getting nothing. I don't know what you're talking about. That sounds like religious speak. I've never known it. The question we have to ask ourselves is maybe those of us who've been longing for the voice of God, the issue is not so much that God is not speaking, but that when he speaks, what we hear from him is not something we like to hear. Maybe God has been speaking. Maybe God makes things very clear to us that we ought to be doing. We just don't like what we hear. It just sounds too painful. 
It's just too humbling, just too difficult, too much that he's asking from us. And so we, we ignore it, we move on. That can't be it. That's not it for sure. Because what I always see in Scripture is, right, there's this incredible instantaneous moment where everything gets better. That's what I've been waiting on. And then when the painful, slow, humbling thing hits you, you go, no, that's not it. That can't be it. I don't need my life to get any more humiliating than it already is, right? I've already been plenty humbled by the circumstances of my life. I don't need any more of that. So we hear that and we go, enemy love. Forgiving the person who's never acknowledged that they wronged me in the first place. That can't be it. This is what Ananias is being asked to do. And it's easy to ignore it and imagine that that must not be it. Or maybe, on the other hand, we imagined as a fully individualistic group of people that epiphany is something that we were supposed to experience alone. We imagine this, this moment with Jesus. It'll be me and Jesus in private, and he'll make clear to me everything that I'm supposed to be doing. This is what will change everything, me and Jesus alone. And it's just not what you see in the story. That's not Saul's story. Epiphany happens together sometimes. And I think a lot of us feel like we never hear from God because we're trying to discern it right by ourselves. We're hearing things and we're going, no. And all it, all it would take is somebody like Ananias leaning in and being like, no, that's it. Epiphany is not something that's meant to happen alone. And that's the invitation. That's what's happening here. That's what worship is. That's what community is. It's recognizing sometimes God's inviting us into the painful, slow process together. Not alone. This is not something you need to attempt to discern by yourself. We sit together. We gather around the table together. We sing these songs together. We pray together. That's what happens in these moments. As the band comes and we do this, there's this invitation to, to step into the process, to not need it to be some fantastic, profound experience with you and Jesus alone, but to open yourself up and to ask seriously if you've been willing to step into that that more difficult process that, that Scripture is showing us. That's what we invite you to in these moments. Consider that. That your experience is not all that different from what we're seeing here. Step into it. Ask God what that looks like. You come and tear off a piece of bread, take a cup, move back toward your seats. They'll play a song. We're going to worship together. Uh, but when they finish this song, I, I'll come back up and uh, we'll do this together. Father, we, we thank you for this morning, we thank you for your word, and we ask, God, that you would grant us your clarity in these moments. Help us to recognize the places where we've just been ignoring your voice because it sounded too difficult, too painful, too slow, not quick enough, not gratifying enough. We need an easier fix sometimes, God, and I pray, Lord, that you would show us the risk involved is worth it. We pray that you'd show us the incredible reward of the kingdom. That we would see that in the life of Saul of Tarsus as he becomes this incredible apostle, Paul. That we'd see it in the life of Ananias as he goes on to live a life of obscurity 
but is made great in the kingdom. Do that work in us now, we pray in Jesus' name.